Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm your host, Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. We are back, that's right. After a couple weeks off for the late summer there, our team is back at it. We are also close to welcoming our latest group of fellows, a very exciting time for the program. Stay on top of all of our news at agentsofchangeinej.org. This podcast is supported in part by Beauty Counter, a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. Today's guest is Dr. Annie Belcourt, an American Indian assistant professor in the College of Health Professions and Biomedical Sciences at the University of Montana's Pharmacy Practice and School of Public and Community Health Sciences Department. Man, what a mouthful some of these department names are. She is an enrolled tribal member of the three affiliated tribes, Blackfeet, Chippewa, Mandana, Hidatsa. Belcourt talks about growing up on the Blackfeet Reservation, cultural contamination, and using psychology to address the unique mental health challenges and issues in U.S. Indigenous communities. Enjoy! All right, I am very excited to be joined by Annie Belcourt. Annie, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Excited to be here with you. And where are you today? So I am uh, in Montana, which is the traditional indigenous lands to the Salish and to many other um, tribal communities here in Montana. And uh, I myself am uh, Blackfeet, Chippewa, Mandan, and Hidatsan. So, um, and my Indian name I often share with people is uh, Amanisiaki or Otter Woman in our Blackfeet language. So. So you, that's a good place to start. So you grew up on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. Tell me about that place and how you think it may have shaped you. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I grew up on the Blackfeet Reservation just outside of Glacier National Park. And so our closest neighbor was a mile away. <laughs> so you can imagine it was uh, incredible as a child to grow up you know, surrounded by, you know, in, you know, an environment that was so beautiful and also such a part of our family. Um, I grew up in between Home Gun Ridge and Red Blanket. We call it Hill, but it was really very large buttes. And, uh, and the Home Gun name is, is our family name um, from, for the Blackfeet. So, we, you know, we had wild animals. We had grizzly bears, elk, moose, you know, all, you name it, all throughout our land. And so growing up in that, in that environment was very special to me. It's a very spiritual place. And so allowing, you know, me and my family to be a part of that community, which is really how the Blackfeet view other, um, you know, plant and, and uh, other animals as our, our relatives. And so we, we call them as such. So it was a real privilege to have that. And then I went to school at a very, very small combined classroom school called In Star School is um, the name of the little community. And, uh, you know, it, you know, I will say, you know, you know, all the health disparities that, you know, we learn about and we unfortunately teach about in our classes are, are very much true for where I grew up and how, you know, um, all the lives of the people who I know were touched by in some way or another, some of the, the struggles that American Indian people uh, face as well. So, so it's, it's within that reality that I sort of had, um, you know, wanted to um, develop an education and a pathway in academia ultimately 
but that foundation is always with me of, of being a, you know, a Blackfeet person. And that educational path, uh, you, you've definitely done that. So, you know, a lot of people I talk to on here, they shift majors, they shift areas of focus. You know, it's a, it's a time in your life when you're figuring things out. Uh, for myself, I didn't even start journalism until my late 20s. So, but you have a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in psychology. So it seems like something grabbed you pretty early on. And I'm wondering what that was about the field. Yeah. Um, so I also had a, a an undergraduate minor before they had a major available in Native American studies. So, you know, um, and there was no degree offered <laughs> at the master's or PhD level in uh, Native, Native American um, studies at our university. So I um, psychology really was an area that I felt you know, very passionately about being able to um, help my communities and, and, and to, you know, be curious about, you know, how people function, how, um, how people, you know, make the decisions that they do, what, when, when problems happen, what does that look like, and how can we help people, um, you, know, co- you know, cope with many different um, barriers, including mental health aspects of their lives. So for me, it was a really... Um, incredibly hopeful field uh, because it looked at really difficult problems and things that people are afraid of, um, such as mental illness. People have a lot of fear around that and and really provides ways based on empirical science to help people um, improve. And and for me, you know, there was such a um, quiet, if not silenced, voice for Native people within the academic field of psychology. And so for me, it was really a great opportunity to to learn about all of the wonderful ways that we can help people through psychotherapy and all the other intervention formats, but also be able to understand how American Indians and their reality is different in some ways and how some of that is shaped um, by, by, you know, numerous factors, but one of those factors being the environment and our relationship with the natural world as well. So so there's many things that have led to that, but I've been very happy about that. Yeah, and I want to get into some of those unique aspects in dealing with Indigenous communities, um, but, but I've been asking everybody this question, and it's a big, unwieldy one, and that is, what is a defining moment or event that shaped your identity? And this could be professional, personal, yeah. I mean, I read this and I, I had to really think about it because there's been so many. I've been really um, blessed with, you know, incredible children, a family that, you know, was loving and sober and kind and all of the things that you want to see in a family. Um, and, you know, all of those things, have co- of course, shaped who I am and, and the most important ways, you know, and to, to build me as a um, compassionate human being who, you know, values um, intelligence and thought and, and those sorts of good things. Um, but I do have to say, you know, um, my first encounter with like serious, you know, severe close loss was also very important in, in terms of my formation as a person and my academic career. And and part of that was the loss of my sister. She um, was that di- she died um, in 2001, and she was um, she and a friend were um, out and randomly ran into people who one of them killed her and ended her life. And so when that happened, I was, I think, a second-year graduate student in clinical psychology. And so as you can imagine, it was really very difficult for me to over, you know, um, for me just to exist, actually. It was very, very painful. Um, But I was able to, to do that 
because of my family and because of my children and, and able to, um, you know, complete a doctorate degree and continue to do psychotherapy with people. And, and, and a lot of it is just, um, you know, of course I would want my sister back, but I, it has um, made me as an individual challenge fears I have. And, and to lean into things like compassion and kindness in the work that I do. Um, and, and that, to me, is her legacy. And that's really important to me, that she has a legacy that is uh, hopeful and that um, is showing that you know, people can, um, can overcome loss because of the people that they love. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm incredibly sorry for your loss. And I believe you're the first person on that question to talk about loss in that way. And I think it's a really beautiful way to look at a, a defining moment. We all deal with loss. I mean, it's it's a constant in our life, um, especially as we get older. So um, that, that it's really powerful to turn that into something, to something beautiful and positive. So before we get into the nitty gritty of your work, I kind of wanted to set the foundation a little bit because we haven't had, you know, on this podcast, we haven't had a ton of in, Indigenous scientists on here. And uh, I, I know indigenous science and kind of traditional knowledge. I know at some point it's called traditional ecological knowledge. I don't know if that's still a cool term or not. But but these perspectives have have historically been left out of Western science or incorporated in ways that were um, haphazard at best and disrespectful at worst. So I'm wondering, in your mind, in your research, you know, what does meaningful, respectful partnerships between indigenous communities and research look like to you? And and are you seeing progress on this front? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. I mean, it's a complex question because, you know, a lot of what we're seeing historically is some of the things that you've talked about, like that are more extractive science and people coming in, getting their information, writing their paper, getting their degree, getting money, and it not really benefiting the community. So that is a process that has begun to be challenged by tribal communities. And I um, am happy to say that I've been um, part, uh, part of that journey. And I serve as a volunteer um, reviewer for a Blackfeet Nation IRB. And uh, one of the first questions is how does this impact the community in positive ways? How does this benefit the community? And that doesn't seem like it should be a wild <laughs> question. But, you know, a, a lot of applications that we see do struggle to, to answer that question in ways that are uh, appropriate and, and um, adequate, frankly. Um, a lot of times um, the old model has been this extractive, we come in, tell you what, maybe tell you what's wrong, <laughs> you know, and go away, um, as opposed to having the community drive the research and have it be applied and, and having you know, ways um, described that could help improve not only community health, but individuals' health as well. Um, so, you know, a lot of what we're seeing now is that as we think about even um, the concept of human subjects research, um, that, you know, Native people have a more expansive definition of that. That includes, you know, um, blood samples. It includes our, our relatives who have passed on. Um, we have the National Graves Repatriation Act. That, um, you know, we, um, uh, as reviewers of IRB proposals, have to think about, too. And, and this is also um, cultural knowledge that's protected. And, um, and it's protected for many reasons, including some of the past practices that have uh, misapplied or misconstrued or misrepresented uh, Native culture and and to have um, 
that be prevented is something that we try to do. So, you know, as we think about traditional ecological knowledge and how that applies to our behavior, um, it is also a nuanced discussion because, you know, there's many wonderful examples of how native and um, indigenous knowledge has advanced science and and continues to do so. Um, And we have to think about how those advancements can be shared with indigenous communities as well in effective ways. Um, so, so those are some of the things I think that we're beginning to see be required, and it's taken a long time to have that happen, but um, people are more aware of, of the <clears throat> need to respect tribal sovereignty um, in these domains. So I think a lot of people, when they think of psychology, they think of a person lying on the couch and then another person writing on a pad and asking them about their mother or something. I, there's a there's a trope that's in all the movies. So, um, you know, when I looked at your work, it looks like it's uh, obviously much, much more than that. Um, so just what does it look like to work in a clinical psychology setting with a, with a community? I assume there's still probably some one-on-one interaction, but as a community clinical psychologist, um, what does that look like? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I did actually just get a couch in fairness this week. <laughs> Because I did actually just recently reno my office, but (laughs) it's a small one. It's not. Um, So I was trained as a scientist practitioner and in clinical psychology. And so, you know, always kind of doing clinical work or experience to help really inform the work that I do scientifically and the research that I do. Um, The work that I've done has been um, diverse in many ways um, because I had um, done an postdoc where we did a lot of psychiatric epidemiology where we looked at things, we sliced up what problems are and how they're associated with things. And it was a wonderful opportunity. And I, you know, really cherish my time in Colorado. Um, However, I also was like, had a growing impatience on how do we actually help communities? And a lot of that was because I was a clinician. So I was trained to help people and communities. And so I shifted quickly into things that were not just dissemination, that were truly bringing the community in and and hearing their voices and having um, that be documented and shared. So some of the things that we've done has been um, digital storytelling uh, workshops where we teach people the basics of video making, um, creating, I just started to do looking at creating podcasts and ways to increase um, our as a native people, access to information, and um, and especially indigenous kind of centered um, information as well. So those are some things that have have kind of gone on over the time. There's a ton of things, though. I mean, I've been involved with like R01, which is like kind of like high multi level year science um, projects, and but I've incorporated video within that. I've incorporated traditional knowledge within that. Uh, we created a, an environmental exposure measure specifically for indigenous communities and looking at traditional practices and how that uh, basically interacts with things like climate change and and for um, tribal communities, how people are coping with extreme weather events. And so that's a paper that's coming out and that we're very excited about, you know, being able to share our information. And this was like you know, gathered before the pandemic, right before. And so to be able to kind of have a snapshot of how things were there and then, you know, future research, we can take a look at how things are going now. 
But um, a lot of my work is also mentorship, and I mentor. Um, I have a doctoral student who's finishing and will be graduating next week, <laughs> and he is looking at um, substance use and traditional uh, cultural knowledge, attitudes, and beliefs. And so, Deshane Barnett is, um, you know, the next generation, you know, of people who are going to move this work forward. And he's also our county health director here in Missoula. So a lot of us are very proud of him as a Native man to be able to enter these spaces and and to provide an Indigenous voice to, um, you know, spaces that often were not. <laughs> so so my, you know, my research has really evolved over time. Uh, I'm now I, I'm a Hollywood producer, believe it or not. <laughs> Whoa. I know, it's <laughs> wild. Um, so my daughter is a filmmaker and a writer, and um, so we, we produced a short film. Um, I have a poster over here um, called Dogwood This Summer, uh, and it was completely shot. On the Blackfeet Reservation, all, you know, Blackfeet crew, uh, we had ca- Native cast, and um, and it was looking at, you know, difficult topics around, um, uh, we hear a lot about missing and murdered Indigenous women, and in fact, tomorrow is um, the um, National Day of Remembrance for MMIW, and, um, you know, this film kind of looked at what are some of the upstream variables? How is domestic violence, you know, within our homes and our communities uh, impacting Native women and how our Native women, um, you know, responded to or more importantly not responded to by criminal justice systems. And so um, those are hard questions. <laughs> and they're questions I didn't necessarily think I'd be doing when I was learning how to do psychotherapy or what have you. But all of those things have really converged into a place of inquiry that I feel as a scholar is exciting. And as we move into, you know, hopefully beyond this past pandemic, um, that we can start to have post-traumatic growth happen and, and that there's ways that we can heal not only as individuals but as communities. And psychology and Native scholars have a real place within that. So you mentioned earlier some of the unique aspects of working with tribes. And, and part of this I remember as a reporter when I, I wrote, wrote about environmental pollution on tribal land and how it not only contaminates bodies but contaminates culture, you know, so if, uh, for example, I remember being in upstate New York with the, the Mohawk, and if you can't eat fish out of the St. Lawrence River, not only are you losing a fish, you're losing uh, the, the opportunity for language to be passed down for um, teaching how to get that fish, a, a whole a whole cascade of effects. Uh, I recall visiting out your way, visiting the Crow Reservation in Chief Plenty Coup Spring, which was a sacred spring used for sun dances and for drinking after fast, and they couldn't do that because it was contaminated. So it put these traditions on hold. So I'm wondering, can you talk about some of these cultural impacts of pollution and environmental insults that you've seen in your work and, and why that's such a, a kind of a unique aspect in working with tribal communities? Yeah, um, you know, it, it is, in fact, a very significant um, topic for all indigenous communities in one way or another. Um, here in Montana, we see, like you said, um, water pollution being an issue. Um, climate change is, is increasing temperatures quite rapidly, and we're seeing things like, you know, more um, zoonautical, um, you know, like like uh, giardia in the water. Um, and and so, it, it in fact, even though where I grew up, Glacier, seems very pristine, it's actually not safe to drink water from, from the river. You have to boil it or treat it in some way. Um, and also the droughts have really impacted our traditional foods. And um, we've had, you know, 
times where we haven't been able to gather the foods that we need for ceremony, let alone sustenance on a sustained basis. And and as we know, um, many Native people live in poverty, and some of the foods that are you know best for us to eat are, are traditional foods. Yet they're very expensive. And not only if you're able to gather, then you have to pay for transportation to get there and get, you know, permits and things at some places. And so those are just examples of of here in Montana. Um, I have a friend who is, um, her name is Stephanie Moore. She's a researcher for NOAA um, on the Pacific Coast um, near Seattle. And She's done a number of different really important pieces of science, but some of them have been with our tribal communities partners. And um, one of the stories that really stood out to me was, you know, the, well, there's many, but um, they have a high level of demoic acid in some of the, the shellfish. And so it'll cause, you know, widespread uh, closures of beaches because it's toxic to humans. It's a neurotoxin. Um, and it can cause uh, acute amnesia. And so there's studies looking at the low-level um, exposures within our native communities and how it may, you know, uh, or may not impact people. Uh, so, but a story was shared by um, <clears throat> an elder from the community, and his name is Larry Campbell. And he he shared with us that, um, <clears throat> you know, the importance of spiritual foods and how, you know, um, he saw a, a woman, you know, taking a Benadryl, which is like an allergy medication, right? And and they were in a, a communal fishing kind of feast. And and he, he asked her, well, why are you taking this Benadryl? Are you okay? And she said, well, I'm allergic to shellfish. And, you know, um, and, and we don't know, if again, if that's because of how shellfish are treated once they're out of the water or what have you. But the point is, is he was like, well, why would you eat it? You can't. And he, she said, my spirit needs to eat the food. It's not that I need to eat the food. And 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 so I'll I'll take this because I need this to kind of have spiritual nourishment and to, to continue on. And, and not everybody understands that about Native people. You know, where I grew up, um, you know, we've literally, you know, the landscape was named for our ancestors because that's where we are, have always been. And that's our belief system. And, um, you know, and so the relationships we have with, with our um, environment is so critical. So those are some of the things that we we have to think about as we, we you know, think about the environmental um, impact of climate change, of uh, pollution, of inequality, of planned ecotoxic you know, <laughs> um, areas that are, you know, exposed to all of these different um, um, challenges and, and having it not be always, um, you know, more likely that people of color experience the um, after effects of that. And, and and unfortunately, that's too often true across the country um, with tribal communities I have worked with, um, you know, throughout the, the nation that there has been consistently um, discussions of of how the environmental changes that we're seeing are impacting them very directly. Um, you know, that, that not as a, some thought. <laughs> it's like, you know, every day. So one of your papers that stuck out to me when I was doing some research is you pointed out the very health, health disparities in Indigenous communities that you just mentioned and how I believe you said it was a moral imperative that the U.S. Um, makes up for this lack of research and, and find strategies to address this. And, and this is, of course, against the backdrop of historical backdrop of genocide, forced removal, environmental contamination, a lot of the really ugly history of that relationship. So what do you see as a path forward 
to better to better to do better in in researching and reaching out to these communities and improving and eliminating these health disparities. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a wonderful question because I don't know that I have the entirety <laughs> of the answers, but um, but I do know um, a lot of it really relies upon um, you know including communities at the center of of any work um, and having and that sounds so simple and like obvious, <laughs> but frequently it's not the case. Usually what happens is, is a, a researcher comes in, has a particular expertise, and then wants to do research to confirm that expertise, you know, essentially. I mean, that's a little crass, I apologize, but still, like, you know, basically, <laughs> like, it, it's a very sort of linear process, right? Or A plus B, and then let's find if A plus B works again in this community or what have you. And, um, you know, and, and there's a growing impatience for that sort of slow incremental um, science. There's a place for that, of course, right? But there's also a place for dynamic ways of engaging communities in discussions. And um, those are some things that are really hopeful. How do we find people who are within the community to be agents of change, to to really look at advocating um, within many different spheres, including policy, legislation, uh, you know, funding, um, research, uh, healthcare, all those different kind of ways that we can help to improve health of a given community. And unfortunately, we've had, you know, too few um, leaders who have stepped up to that. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's it's challenging. You know, here in Montana, we, we've had a really challenging few years, of course, like everybody. But also politically, we've had um, laws passed here um, to actually decrease gun restrictions on our campus and to increase, you know, open carry on our cam- our campuses, which is really, you know, just profound to me that that would... And, and you know, when we know... Suicide is the biggest killer of our native people in our in our state, and we have the highest rates of suicide. And you know, um, you know, why on earth would we, you know, not want to invest in ways to help people live hope, hopeful lives and longer lives, right? Um, why, you know, what are the things that we can do to unpack that inequality in ways that is empowering to communities? And, and that's what's really needed. We need to have people, you know, at the at the helm deciding what is helpful and telling their stories. And that's why I've kind of really gotten into storytelling and film and, um, you know, applied public health. You know, it's, it's not, um, I was just told the other day it was just dissemination what I do. And I really bristled at that because, you know, um, I have done the classic, you know, like churn and burn paper market, you know, like writing and writing and getting grants and different things like that. But some of those meaningful things I've ever done in my life has been to listen to tribal people and um, and to learn about ways that they try to bring healing and peace to others in a very selfless way. And, and it's a beautiful thing to know that we have communities who have ways of, of healing, you know, not only each other, but communities. And a lot of our ceremonies are about healing, you know, our relationship with the plant in other other worlds, you know, that we have. And um, I think that that's a really powerful thing. I think that we can we can learn from that. And, and those are ways that we can um, teach others about some of these things so that there's less fear, that there's less, um, you know, hatred that's directed towards American Indian people. Um, you know, showing that when when our people go missing, it matters and that we find them 
and we hold those who hurt them accountable. Those are all examples of ways that we can kind of show that Native American lives do in fact matter and that we as a people and as communities um, are important in this in this world and and that um, you know it's a really it could be a win-win right to learn about the richness of our cultures is not you know an onerous thing <laughs> and you know we, we've from day one had to learn about other cultures right and and you know yet we're trying to you know play catch up when we think about um, you know native communities and so that time is here you know I don't think we need to wait anymore I think the time is um, right for us to invest in ways to promote even arts our language uh, our culture, our stories, uh, our scholars in, in, uh, in ways that will be, you know, ultimately helpful to everyone, including science. And that's, there is such a breadth and richness to this nation's tribes. I mean, there's, there's all of, there, there's not a monolith when it comes to, to Native people here. And it seems as if you've gotten to work with a lot of different communities, both your own and outside, outside of that. So I kind of two questions. One, if you could talk about some of the rewarding and positive aspects uh, of your work and also how much goes into understanding a community maybe you're not familiar with, because I know tribes, even if they are near in, in geography, can have very different history and, and culture. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, I myself am four different tribal nations, right? <laughs> so I grew up on the Blackfeet, so I know more about Blackfeet culture and, and history. Um, but I'm also Chippewa on my um, gra- my dad's side. My grandfather was, uh, that's where the Belcourt name comes from, is he was uh, Chippewa. And, uh, um, but he lost his parents in the Spanish flu and so ended up in an orphanage. And so, um, you know, and then on my mom's side, they're Mandan Hadats. And, and so just for me as an individual, learning our personal history or family tree, looking at um, even things like the Garrison Dam um, was built. You know, when it was built, it flooded the best agricultural area for an agrarian or farming tribe, (laughs) multiple. And um, the place where my mother was born is underwater uh, because she was born um, in that valley in a place called Elbow Woods that's now underwater. And... um, you know, so these these systematic decisions to marginalize us and and to um, um, you know, pre- you know, commit genocide really uh, upon native people has really required that we really be strong and not just in some sort of stoic trope. You know, like a really dynamic way of thinking about our communities and how we share our culture in ways that are responsible as well as hopeful. Um, because that's at the heart of it is hope. You know, we want our children to have a better place than what we were born into. And um, so that's the reason why so many of us are passionate about, you know, telling our stories as well as like um, the, the hard parts as well as the joyful parts. And, and, um, and I, I have such admiration for storytellers um, who are out there creating in a time um, of chaos in some ways, and 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 that there is reasons to to have difficulties hoping, and and that that's you know I'm reminded um, you know in our work with Blackfeet, this they were doing culture classes, and one of the elders from Canada because we have tribes that are in Canada that are part of our our Blackfeet um, Confederacy, and um, and he was talking about this story about. Um, a ceremony and some of the songs and he described the different animals so the different animals have different songs and one of them was the dog and um and it was a story of this dog that was by the lodge and he was this dog was a mom dog mother dog and was singing the song 
and she was encouraging her baby puppies to like, you know, live hopeful lives so that they could continue to live with the Blackfeet, their relatives. And, and it was just like the beauty of that, of that connection and the power and how amazing is it to be from a community that has always, you know, loved, you know, each other. Um, and, um, and that's, that's the thing that I've learned you know, come you know, time again is that you know, for for my own tribal communities, um, the strength of our love and our compassion for each other is stronger than the things that tear us apart, um, and that that is a lesson that I've also seen um, in other tribal communities that I have worked with, and you know, facing very similar challenges, having very different ways. I mean, <laughs> you know, culture, language, everything, you know, very, very different. But some of the commonalities are what bring us together as people and, and allow us to think about um, how, do we, how do we solve some of these problems in ways that are, you know, um, more effective, um, that provide true solutions, and, and how is that something that we can share with other tribal communities. And the generosity, like you mentioned, is so apparent with, with Native people. We want truly everyone to win. You know, um, and there there's times where people get kind of jealous or whatever things like that. But at the end of the day, I just want people to do better and to feel better and to do a life that feels good and whole and livable to them, and and to share that with their children in hopeful and happy ways. You know, so not not uh, not radical <laughs> um, things in in many ways, but. But yeah, working with, with different tribes is just, I've been struck by how incredibly rich our communities and cultures are and how much more we can share. So you spend a lot of time thinking about other people's mental health. Uh, how do you perform your work and still maintain your own? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so I I do... You know, I am a psychologist, so thank God for that, right? Because I know what to do. Um, but <laughs> it doesn't mean I always do it completely. Um, but, you know, with me, I love spending time with my family. Um, I love, um, I've done many of the pandemic things of, like, learning how to make sourdough bread. I just grew mushrooms, you know. <laughs> like, uh, um, But getting into, like, my culture has been really a joyful part of the last few years. And... Um, you know, learning our language a little more. I'm really bad at it, um, but it doesn't keep me from trying, you know, because it, it just like I mentioned with the story with the shellfish, like, you know, uh, it feeds my spirit to learn more about, you know, the language of my ancestors, um, the practices that keep us whole and how, how beautiful, you know, um, our culture and communities are truly. And that, that is really, those are things that really feed you know, and nourish my spirit and, and help me wanting to keep writing and doing things that will help others. And, um, and it's hard. There are days I, I will say that, you know, it becomes really discouraging, you know, especially here in Montana, we see, you know, here in, I live in Missoula and, um, native people can't afford to live here. They can't afford to move here. We don't have housing. We have people who are moving and forcing up all the prices and we're not paying people enough to, to live here. And, um, and we're followed in stores, and we have all of these realities on a daily basis. So you have to find ways to take care of yourself and your family. Um, for some, that's ceremony and culture. For others, it's just a daily, um, you know, um, smudging, like mini ceremonies and things of that nature. But, but the big picture is, is that you're building towards something better. And, and that always gives me a lot of hope. Um, 
but yeah, there's smaller things too, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, we're learning more about radical acceptance, you know, in our family and how some of the suffering that we experience, part of our culture is that you offer it to creator when you have experienced suffering and, and you do so on behalf of others so that you can heal for them and, and you can be strong for them. And that's a lot of what we, um, as a family try to do is we try to help each other and we try to help other people um, live ho more hopeful lives and and that's um, that's something for me that's really you know an honor um, to be a part of as part of my family and my friends and things and and then you know like you said I just laugh <laughs> sometimes inappropriately awesome well Annie this has been so much fun learning about you learning about your work thank you so much for doing this thank you thank you very much appreciate it All right, that's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Annie. If you enjoy this podcast and what we're doing, visit agentsofchangenej.org, and while you're there, click the Donate button. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelens-Vanhorn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Email our team at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at agentsofchangeinej.org. That newsletter is the best way to stay on top of everything we have going on. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Dr. Ashley Gripper, a senior Agents of Change fellow and soon-to-be assistant professor with the Ubuntu Center on Racism, Global Movements, and Population Health Equity at Drexel University. Have a great week, folks.